0: The gunpowder plot of 1605 doesn't seem at all believable as a genuine Catholic attempt to seize power, because it doesn't fit with any one of the patterns of rebellion which span the period after 1450.
1: But it does fit exactly into the series of plots which King James's chief minister, Robert Cecil, and before him, Robert's father, who was Queen Elizabeth's chief minister, had apparently discovered since 1571. All of these plots were in part cases of entrapment. Does the gunpowder plot of 1605 fit into that pattern too?
0: Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk, usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank.
1: And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a
0: chair, and let's see what happens. Robert Cecil is often described as the head of England's secret police. Now, the reason was that he'd inherited his father's network of intelligencers and informants in the 1590s, and he continued to bury himself deeper and deeper into his father's world of secrecy. Nothing makes him confident, observed the Earl of Northampton, who disliked him deeply, but experience of secret trust and security of intelligence. 1596, with his father increasingly sick and the intelligence network in decay, Robert Cecil had taken over as the Queen's principal secretary, and he'd energetically begun to rebuild the family's intelligence network. He used William Wade soon to be installed as superintendent of the tower, and the codebreaker and forger Thomas Phillips, who were both veterans from the 1580s. He also used a merchant financier called Sir Horatio Pallavicino. By 1598, they'd assembled, in historian Stephen Alford's words, a formidable network of agents. They extended from the Irishman who checked every passenger boat that sailed up the Thames, to intelligences and contacts in Rome, Venice... Sweden, Denmark, France, the Netherlands, Portugal and of course Spain, including two in Seville, each working without knowledge of the other.
1: A famous set of accounts from 1598 shows that Cecil was personally charging for a secret service allowance of £800 pounds a year, perhaps about £150,000 day. But that was only the start of it. Cecil also paid merchants to carry letters or people for him on their ships and to report whatever they heard. Walford reckons the whole thing was costing the government's secret budget, which Cecil revived, nearly 13000 a year, perhaps £2.5 in today's money? That was just salaries, let alone expenses. For the time, it was a colossal sum.
0: Actually, it's particularly difficult to imagine Cecil missing anything going on in the Houses of Parliament. The little town of Westminster, which was then quite distinct from the walled square mile of the City of London, was the central eye of Cecil's network. What books on the gunpowder plot don't tell you is that Westminster, where all the action is supposed to have taken place, was virtually a private Cecil family kingdom. It's another missing context we
1: need to understand. Cecil's father had built a fine house for himself north of the Strand, and Cecil had erected his own house on the riverside. In fact, he shifted an entire street to make way for it, and owned many other properties there too. As the historian J.E. Merritt has shown, Robert Cecil privately employed an unusually large number of musicians, artists, writers, architects and gardeners at his house, and we know that some of these, like the harpist Cormac McDermott and Shakespeare's rival playwright Ben Jonson, doubled up as couriers and as his intelligences or secret agents. Musicians, like the composer Peter Phillips, particularly useful as informants because they travelled a great deal and had a perfect excuse for passing time in the houses of the rich and influential. Members of Cecil's enormous household staff must have been a common sight in Westminster streets. Now in 1605,
0: Westminster had no town council and it was run by medieval manorial officials and parish vestries. Robert Cecil had taken over from his father as manorial high steward. That was the senior official. Even the clergy at Westminster Abbey danced to his tune. It would therefore be, to put it no more strongly, very surprising if a group of well-known Catholics, including members of the King's bodyguard and others who'd taken part in Essex Rebellion in 1601 and had been marked men ever since, had got away unnoticed in Westminster in 1604 and 1605, especially if they were amassing a giant store of gunpowder. Cecil had more eyes and ears working for him here than anywhere else in the world. And that's saying something.
1: We're suggesting instead that Cecil used his intelligence network to entrap a group of minor Catholic gentlemen and fabricate a plot to blow Parliament up. As in all these Cecil plots and entrapments, the victims were, as we shall see, in fact, engaged in a real, if much less threatening, plot blowing Parliament up, was not on their agenda. One reason for Cecil's deception, as we've seen, was to bully Parliament into obeying his orders. The other reason, in keeping with so many entrapments before, was that Cecil desperately needed something to outmaneuver his enemies at court.
0: Robert Cecil was uncontested as James's chief minister almost from the start of the reign. It was a position his father had occupied before him right from the start of Elizabeth's reign. Cecil's father had had a certain amount of competition, but he faced nothing like the difficulties encircling his son. Robert Cecil was very much weaker than he at first appears. The king himself, James, actively disliked Cecil. He had every reason. The Venetian ambassador wrote that James did not let a day pass without lamenting the execution of his mother and making those responsible fearful for their appointments and even of a bloody end. Well, well might Cecil be afraid then. James's mother had been Mary Queen of Scots and Cecil's father had been her most embittered enemy. He'd been the man most responsible for the entrapment that had led to her
1: execution. Second, although Cecil was supposedly in command of the government, along with the earls of Northampton, Suffolk and Worcester, the reality was much more subtle. James's accession had been met by a strong bid on the part of the older nobility to reassert its position at the centre of government, following a period in which Elizabeth had concentrated political power in the hands of non-aristocratic, arivist administrators like the Cecil's. While in Scotland, James had been in contact with the Earl of Northumberland and Lord Harry Howard, both from England's oldest and most prominent noble families. Northumberland was appointed Privy Councillor and certainly at first expected to be taken seriously in his new role. Much more threatening was Harry Howard. He'd been one of Mary Queen of Scots' most consistent confidants. He'd been implicated in several of the plots to put her on the throne, imprisoned five times by the Cecils, Exiled to the country and had his papers seized. Yet somehow he'd escaped the Cecil's clutches each time.
0: Before he'd become king, James had insisted that Robert Cecil use Lord Harry if he wanted to communicate with him. It was deeply humiliating for Cecil. Once on the throne, James had made Lord Harry the Earl of Northampton and he gave him a magnificent ruby. It was so large, Howard built a new fangled display cabinet specially for it. Not only did Harry Howard have a fine old noble pedigree and a long and impeccable record of loyalty to James's late mother, Mary Queen of Scots, but he was a scholar, he taught at Cambridge, and he was a lifelong bachelor, who may suggests his biographer, Linda Levy Peck, have been homosexual. Quotes, with a predilection for young men. Now, they were signs of his character that would particularly have appealed to James, who described Howard as long approved and trusty. James, too, regarded himself as a scholar, he'd written half a dozen books before arriving in England. Michael Young has also put forward a convincing case that King James was, if not actively homosexual, then strongly and sexually drawn to young men. It was known at the time as the Darling Sin, and James's association with it was widely lampooned on the stage, in verse and in underground pamphlets. It was even brought up in Parliament.
1: James's shift in 1603 towards the Howards and other old noble families and away from the new men like the Cecils was further complicated by the fallout from Essex's rebellion of 1601. We discussed it in an earlier episode in this series. Historians agree that Cecil largely engineered Essex's execution after the Rising. But Cecil quickly discovered that Elizabeth and then James were protecting Essex's surviving friends. Essex's companion in rebellion, Henry Risley, for example, became the Earl of Southampton. Another, Lord Mountjoy, became the Earl of Devonshire. James's new reign also marked a significant swing in favour of loyal Catholics. Both the new earls of Northampton and Worcester had at least pronounced Catholic sympathies, as did the Earl of Northumberland. Even James's Queen Anne was by this time a discreetly practising Catholic.
0: Robert Cecil was frozen out by every detail of this. Not only was he widely disliked, he was an aggressive Protestant and the son of Elizabeth's most long-serving Ereviste.
1: Having also, as we've seen, originally backed a Spanish princess for the English throne.
0: Yeah, Cecil was the Johnny-come-lately to James's party. It was an extremely uncomfortable position to be in. When Elizabeth died, Cecil was given the honour of announcing the new king's accession, but it was a piffling reward There were no rubies for him. He didn't become an earl until after the gunpowder plot in 1605. If James had to work with him, he was not going to make it easy. In
1: 1605, therefore, Cecil found himself in the worst possible position. He was loaded with responsibility, but without effective power. He was also, as we've seen, personally loathed for his abrasive attitude. He was covered in sores from scurvy and widely distrusted because of his scoliosis, a serious curvature of the spine, which was then regarded as a disfiguring disability caused by some moral failing. And that was not the worst of it.
0: Robert Cecil was supposed to be the king's chief minister, but in fact he was widely mistrusted and disliked at court. The worst thing was, he was systematically kept out of the king's inner council. Since the days of Henry VII, the royal court had been geographically and organisationally divided into public and private spheres, a series of spaces with increasingly restricted access. The privy council, where Cecil sat, belonged to the public sphere. In fact, more often than not, under James, it met without the king altogether.
1: The Privy Chamber, however, contained the private rooms of the king's household, staffed by his confidants. When the king moved around the country, many of the personnel of his Privy Chamber went with him. At the heart of the Privy Chamber was the Bed Chamber, where the monarch could retreat with his closest companions. Under James, the Privy Chamber became a place of active intrigue where a great deal of important business was done behind closed doors or on the road, the equivalent of executives making a final decision about something in the gents' loose.
0: One of the keys to understanding Robert Cecil is that he did not have regular access to the Privy Chamber, the king's private household. The historian Conrad Russell believed that he was actually banned from it, it's often said that the problem was that James filled his bedchamber with a crew of hungry Scots who, quotes, filled every corner of the court with their beggarly blue caps. Certainly, other courtiers began to complain that the Scots stank and were ill-mannered and prevented them getting near the king. One of James's closest advisers was indeed a Scotsman, George Hume. He was not only a privy councillor but also keeper of the great wardrobe, an office in the royal household with access to the privy chamber. 1604, for example, Cecil received a lofty letter from Hume. It said that the Scotsman had been sitting with the king in his royal carosh, or coach, and they had been discussing Cecil. You can imagine Cecil's alarm as he reads the letter. Hume goes on to say that they'd in fact been discussing the extent of Cecil's loyalty to the king. Well, Cecil's nerves are now really jangling. Hume reports that they had eventually decided that, well, Cecil was to be trusted, on balance. Cecil breathes again. But as usual, he's been bruised and bullied. And the Scots were not Cecil's only problem in the Privy Chamber.
1: Cecil was a Privy Councillor, but other leading Privy Councillors had free entry to the Privy Chamber. The Earls of Northampton, Suffolk and Worcester all did. Sir Robert Cecil excluded, kept at a distance, was reduced to working away at the details of day-to-day administration while the others spent their time bending the ear of the King. Cecil lugubriously compared himself to Martha toiling in the kitchen while Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. The worst thing was the hunting. James was always out hunting, rather like an American president who spends all his time on the golf course. Unimaginable. And when James was hunting, Cecil had to communicate with him at second hand. He had to send messages, for example, via the Earl of Worcester because he was the king's master of the horse. If Cecil sent papers for signature to the king at some hunting lodge, he would often find the king had moved to another, leaving valuable documents behind as he went. Even when Cecil adapted his own house, Tybalt's, to suit James's hunting tastes, he himself was left indoors working while the king was out with the others enjoying himself. In fact, Cecil adapted his house to suit James's hunting tastes so successfully that the king eventually threw Cecil out altogether and took the house for himself. He, he swapped it for the drafty old royal palace at Hatfield. But we shouldn't lose sleep about this. Cecil was earning enough in various ways to build himself a new, magnificent house there, where the Cecils lived to this day.
0: In February 1605, James told the Privy Council that London made him ill and depressed, and he needed to get out. He wordy declared, come to London, but seldom, uh, passing most of the time in the country in the chase, hunting. James spent literally half of 1605 away from London, usually hunting at Newmarket or at Royston. The local people there objected to the way his horses trampled their crops. At Royston, a posse of local men kidnapped one of the king's greyhounds, Jowler, and sent him back with a note round his neck. Go home, it said, and leave our countryside alone.
1: Back at court, Cecil had to get along as best he could, knowing that others were out riding daily with the king and telling him what to think. The royal court was also riddled with corruption. Historians have argued over this for years, but Linda Levy Peck has concluded that the evidence for a surge of dodgy deals and cronyism under James is just too strong to be ignored. Queen Elizabeth had run a tight, not to say parsimonious ship. James, by contrast, established three royal households for himself, his queen and his children, and the opportunities for self-enrichment blossomed. The giving of sweeteners had become a cash market for jobs and favours. Allocating a major contract, for example the collection of customs in 1604, became a struggle between court factions competing for rich contracts on behalf of their merchant clients. James also handed out thousands of pounds in gifts. So the cost of royal fees, annuities and pensions soared. Robert Cecil, although he was perfectly happy to make a killing for himself, struggled in vain to put any order into a royal court that was spiralling out of affordability, or to transact business which required continual backroom deals with powerful court interests like the Howards, people who, unlike Cecil, had direct access to the king. And when Cecil did finally get to talk to James, he found him walking in circles. Literally. (laughs)
0: Robert Cecil was supposed to be King James's chief minister, but recent historical research shows that he found himself excluded from the king's private councils, while the court was run by the king's Scots pals and his personal friends, who were turning it into a machine delivering cash for favours. When Cecil did finally get to talk to James, he often found him, according to historian Pauline Croft, walking in circles. It was something he did when he was thinking. James was also often drunk. His wife was so disgusted with the way he behaved, which was so ill in every respect, she said, that she didn't believe he would survive for long. Above all, James was notoriously insecure. Fear is and ever was his ruling passion, wrote the Venetian ambassador. A courtier later wrote, that James was the most cowardly man that I ever knew, and claimed he wore a pistol-proof quilted doublet. Hmm. James could often be acerbic, if not downright insulting. On one occasion he became so angry he raised his fists at the Earl of Suffolk, and the Earl only dodged disgrace by dropping to the floor on all fours. James openly called one councillor fat, another saucy, a third cat-faced, and the Earl of Northampton he called his earwig. But James seems to have saved his most unpleasant insults for Robert Cecil. James called him Monkey monger, Mouse, Little Fool, Tom Derry, which was the name of the Queen's court jester, a man with learning difficulties. He also called him Parrot, which was the name Cecil hated most.
1: Pauline Croft, who's written more extensively on Cecil than anyone else, has argued that much of this was harmless and fond. Well, hmm, maybe... But Cecil, she concluded, nevertheless resented it. Well, wouldn't you? It just added to all the rest of his insecurities at court. Cecil did everything he could to improve James's negative view of him. He gave extravagant gifts to the king and his children, threw masks and gambling parties for them, and filled his letters to James with as much amusing wit as he could. The king appeared to actually enjoy his company.
0: But James still called Cecil my little beagle. It was a particularly wounding
1: insult. Beagles
0: were a joke. James taunted Cecil that he was the little beagle that lies at home by the fire. The implication being that the beagle was cosy at home while the real dogs were out hunting with the king. And the beagles were sometimes thrown in with a hunting pack because they had an amusing high-pitched bark that added a frisson of excitement when the hunt was on. Usually a beagle was a lady's pet, little and slow. A dog you hunted with only if you couldn't keep up with the rest. For example, if you had a disability like Cecil. It was a cruel joke. Arguably, James found it easy to bully Cecil, since, as we've seen, Cecil was widely despised. Ben Johnson, the playwright, whom Cecil himself employed as an informant, wrote after his death... Away and leave me thou thing most abhorred, adding that the old fox never cared for any man longer, nor he could make use of him. Perhaps
1: Cecil had something on Ben Johnson, which meant that he was forced into the role of informant. Well, who knows? Historian
0: Joel Hurstfield calls Cecil the most unpopular man in England, loathed by the people, never in the full trust of the king. Well, it's something of an understatement.
1: Now, we started out on this litany of just how universally Robert Cecil was detested when we asked whether there might have been some reason to do with the court that he might want to invent the story of the gunpowder plot. The similar plots that had been invented over the previous 30 years by Cecil and his father had usually been intended, as this one was, to bully Parliament. But some had also been created in order to gain an advantage at court. And it now becomes transparently obvious that Cecil's extreme weakness at court meant that he had everything to gain by discovering a plot that exposed Catholics and by implication their sympathisers, who included his rivals at court, the Earls of Northampton, Worcester and Northumberland. Better still, a plot in which he, Cecil, could play the part of saving the king instead of being always left out of the action like a beagle by the fireside. The gunpowder plot suited Cecil's needs so transparently, it's no wonder so many people at the time, at once, accused him of making it all up. As 1604 passed and 1605 began, Cecil's problems at court had in fact become more and more pressing. Continually hunting with his Scottish entourage, the king was very quickly spending money he didn't have. Only Parliament could vote him more, but as we've seen, in 1604, they'd not given him a penny. And on Christmas Eve, 1604, the Parliament notionally scheduled for February 1605 was put off until October. going to be a long time before he could get his money. Officially, it was because London had been yet again hit by the plague but proroguing Parliament is the last resort of weak government. The Venetian ambassador blamed James for proroguing Parliament. It wouldn't have been surprising if James had wanted to avoid another confrontational, rabidly anti-Catholic session of the Parliament he'd had such rows with in 1604. In fact, wrote the ambassador, there are many who know the king's mind who think it will not meet again, by which he meant ever which incidentally makes a mockery of the official government's story that the gunpowder plotters were at this point trying to tunnel under Parliament so that they could plant their bomb. Nobody knew at the time if Parliament would ever meet again. Privately, Cecil
0: confessed that Parliament was in fact prorogued because he didn't want to go to it begging for money. At least, we might assume, not until he'd worked out some surefire way to force Parliament to cough up some new taxes until, that is, he worked out something like the clever plots his father used to come up with when he wanted to get Parliament moving on some issue. By October 1605, on current form, James would be nearly £700,000, that's perhaps £180 million today, in debt. By then, the Privy Council, in desperation, would be proposing to cut his household expenses by paring back on the number of courtiers and the amount of food that each was served each day. Well, you can't imagine James agreeing to that. Somehow, Cecil had to find a way of recalling Parliament and of getting it to vote the King's taxes through. Well, in these circumstances, it's not at all difficult to imagine what Cecil's father would have done. A serious Catholic threat to the King's life would be discovered, or of course invented, or practised, as the contemporary word had it. Better still, it would be a threat that extended to the Lords and Commons, uh, perhaps even to the King's favourites at court. If he, Cecil, could ostentatiously save them from this great threat, it would help him keep them in order. Ideally, Burley, that's Cecil's father, and his associate Walsingham would have uncovered the framework of a real plot on which to hang it all, and give it at least the appearance of veracity. So, here we've reached the nub of the question... It's not whether the gunpowder plot was real or not, since it's now becoming completely obvious that much or most of it was fabricated by Cecil and his intelligences for reasons that aren't difficult to work out. The question is not whether the gunpowder plot was real, but how much of it was.
1: So how much of the gunpowder plot was invented by Cecil? And how much was for real? Well, to begin to
0: answer the question, we need to go back to February 1605. Actually, this is a crucial moment the books about the plot always seem to get wrong. They will usually tell you that the key moment had occurred back on Sunday, the 10th of February 1604. That day, we're told by a number of historians, in the course of an extraordinary eight hours with his councillors, James had suddenly turned on the Catholics. He protested his utter detestation of their superstitious religion. He said he would rather... Dine a ditch? Well, almost. He said he'd rather bury his own son than tolerate them. He orders his councillors to see the laws speedily executed with all rigour against the Catholics. This sudden royal U-turn in early 1604, of course, would appear very satisfactory to explain the gunpowder plot, since we're always told it was hatched at the Duck and Drake in May 1604.
1: However, we've discovered that James's infamous meeting with his councillors on Sunday the 10th of February 1604, when he turned nasty on the Catholics, never occurred. From notes in the diary kept by Levinus Monk, Cecil's secretary, we can work out that the king was at Royston that day. He, he was hunting, of course... The myth of the meeting that day was created by confusion in calendars. You see, until the 1750s, the new year was not reckoned to begin in England until the 25th of March. So since contemporaries didn't start using the year 1605 until the 25th of March, the day we would call the 10th of February 1605 would then always be written down as 10th of February 1604. Now turn that around if a contemporary document records that James met his council on the 10th of February 1604, what that means in today's calendar is, in fact, that James met his council on the 10th of February 1605. Well, that's sort of that, then. Normally, historians sort all this thing out before getting down to writing anything. But somewhere along the line, this date has got into the system wrong. And one historian after another has repeated it. There's a way to check. 10th of February 1604 in the Julian calendar, still then in use in England, was a Friday. But you recall that James's key meeting with his council happened on a Sunday. And if we look at 10th of February 1605, we find that it was, yep, a Sunday. Now, 10th of February 1605 makes much more sense than 1604 for James to make a violent turn against the Catholics. Because back in early 1604, James had still been parading his toleration towards Catholics, preparing for the sensitive peace talks with Spain he'd only set foot in his new kingdom the year before, determined not to persecute the Catholics. And at the end of the Parliament in July 1604, he was still ordering his councillors not to follow Parliament's decision to reimpose sanctions on Catholics.
0: But after the peace treaty with Spain, which was signed in August 1604, James's line towards Catholics begins to harden. September 1604, according to the Spanish documents found by historian Alice Hogg, James and his council discussed the Catholic question. Apparently Cecil piously proposed leaving them alone, since they were doing no harm. Uh,
1: Wasn't that also because Cecil, like Northampton and other councillors, was still on the Spanish payroll, taking a massive annual pension of £1,000 then? He knew that Northampton would probably leak minutes of the meeting to his paymasters at the Spanish embassy, so Cecil was being careful to put in a good word for the Catholics...
0: Well, as the meeting went on, Lord Treasurer Dorset chipped in dryly that he was happy to see more Catholics, since in their increase Your Majesty will derive much money. But of course that was because they could fine Catholics for being Catholic. It's clear that opinion in the Privy Council was stiffening against the Catholics, and on the 28th of November 1604, James quietly ordered the collection of fines from Catholics to begin again. Maybe the King was taken aback just how much Catholics seemed to be multiplying... Alexandra Walsham has shown that the early 17th century English Catholic community was vibrant, robust, well-connected and far from quiet. It was increasingly attractive to the young. It was almost becoming cool to be a Catholic. It may very well be, therefore, that the early, more tolerant months of James's rule have witnessed a visible increase in Catholic confidence. James's outburst a couple of months later, which we've now dated to the 10th of February 1605, is therefore not such a surprise. The king and his councillors had been shifting towards another attack on the Catholics for some months. But the Privy council was also a money question. Under Elizabeth, fining Catholics used to bring in a very useful six or £7,000 a year. In 1604, after James had stopped collecting the fines, the figure had slumped to just £1,414. After his anti-Catholic rage in February 1605, it began to creep up. And James certainly needed every penny he could
1: get. Whatever the reason, after a couple of years of effective toleration, conditions for English Catholics became significantly harsher from February 1605. And that raises the question whether, from that date, some Catholics did decide they'd had enough and started plotting some kind of a rising in a bid to win back a measure of toleration. It would make sense if they had.
0: Well, the evidence is that they did. As we shall see you next time at the History Cafe. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.
1: Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod.